Hello, friends. Dan here. We have a tremendous discussion coming up for you in just a second with Tim Kachuriak, founder and chief innovation and optimization officer over at Next After. Tim has dedicated his professional life to growing generosity through innovating and optimizing digital fundraising and striving to answer that foundational, important question, why do donors give? We talk about all of that and much more in this wide-ranging conversation. And if you like geeking out on the art and science of fundraising, I really think that you're going to love it. Uh, Tim and I have known each other for a little over a decade. We've worked together in various capacities, and uh, our paths crossed at some really important uh, foundational moments in our careers. And we talk about that and uh, a lot more and uh, really think you're going to enjoy this conversation and get a lot out of it uh, from really just one of the um, the best uh, forward-thinking perspectives in the industry. Tim and Next After have had uh, a lot of success changing the conversation around digital fundraising and fundraising in general. So I really think you'll get a lot out of it. And if you do, won't you do us the favor of subscribing to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast and rating and reviewing us always helps as well, helps us uh, reach more fundraisers and helps us expand our mission, which is to bring value to the nonprofit sector. So here's my discussion with Tim. I uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks as always for listening and for supporting the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. All right. Well, it is a real honor to welcome onto the show right now, Tim Kachuriak, who's the Chief Innovation and Optimization Offer, as well as the founder at Next After. And uh, we're going to be talking about the very important topic about why donors give today, as well as some of the impact that Next After has had on the industry. And we're very thrilled to work welcome onto the show right now. Tim, welcome to the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast, and we appreciate you taking the time. Dan, thanks for having me, man. It's good to to see you at least virtually. I know, I know. I miss the person to person uh, connection, <laughs> and I'm hoping we can get back to that real soon, as I'm sure everyone else is as well. Um, Tim, a lot of people are going to be familiar with your story, which is uh, really inspirational about how you came to start Next After and uh, your theories about fundraising. But um, if you wouldn't mind, just because I think it sets up uh, the conversation so well, would you mind taking us through your origin story in the industry and kind of just give us the overview of how you got to where you are today? Sure, be happy to. Yeah, my, my journey into the nonprofit space, like many, um, was not a direct path. So I, uh, I graduated from college right after 9-11. Horrible, horrible time to enter into the job force, especially for somebody who desperately wanted to work in the field of advertising and marketing. Um, but fortunately, I worked at a country club all during high school and college. And I like to joke, I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. So the guy who was actually the president of the country club was the president of the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh, where I grew up. And I went and met with him and, you know, did my little dog and pony show. And, and he's like, oh man, I'd love to hire you kid. But, you know, we just laid off 30 people last week, you know, 9-11 has hit our industry hard, our agency harder. And, you know, sorry, I can't help you. So I spent the next, uh, I guess, six months kind of wandering in the wilderness, trying to find somebody that would hire me, uh, ended up meeting a guy who was a serial entrepreneur and, um, he said, you know, maybe you can do a couple of little projects for some of my little businesses I operate. And he's, then he's like, you know, why did you start your own business? 
I was like, well, I don't know how to do that. He's of our office building. I'll give you a desk. Um, I'll introduce you to people. I'll be your partner. And the rest is up to you, kid. So like my first five years in the working world was as an entrepreneur and I had no idea what I was doing and being like a very insecure, you know, fresh out of college kid. Um, I was intimidated. Right. And, and, you know, one of two things typically happens when you're insecure is, is you, you know, you either mess up a lot um, or you try to like, just, you know, outperform. Right. And so like, I, I had no idea where the bar was, but I was so insecure of like looking like a fool that I just, um, I guess, you know, I, I did a lot of things at a, at a very high level and it was great. And I, I did that for about five years and um, love what I was doing, ended up uh, gravitating more towards digital marketing. And um, we had, we had a, a number of good clients and stuff, but it was like, I, I love what I was doing, but I wasn't really excited about the clients that we were working with. Not that they were bad, but we had like, you know, a lot of like law firms and automotive dealerships and there's nothing wrong with car dealers or lawyers. Right. Um, but it didn't really spin my wheels because I was always a cause guy. So um, about five years in my, my church was doing a capital campaign and uh, I volunteered to do all the marketing materials for that capital campaign. It was the first time that I was doing something I felt like I was wired to do marketing, but for a cause I cared deeply about. And like, once you get bit by that bug, it's like hard to go back and, you know, make websites for car dealers. Right. So end up having like this crisis of career. Um, long story short, I, I sold my little company sold our house, moved from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I went to work for a nonprofit, a faith-based nonprofit down there. The day I got there, the founder of the organization who had been there for 35 years had a heart attack. Um, he was hospitalized for about nine months and he passed away. And we went from a, a $36 million year organization to 18 and 12 months. Basically all the major donors are like, you know, we're not really sure the future of this organization. So um, we're going to kind of wait. And um, it was right around that time that I, I got introduced to this whole world of like, you know, fundraising agencies. I had no idea this, this even existed. And we happened to work with one based in Dallas called KMA and got to know their, their CEO, Tom McCabe. And he said, uh, you know, Hey, I don't know what your future looks like here, but uh, would you consider moving to Dallas and helping us start a digital fundraising division? We've been doing direct mail for 30 years. We're trying to figure out how to move into this brave new digital world. And maybe you can help us with that. So I was like, sure. I don't, I don't know what my future looks like here either. So um, I moved to Dallas in 2008. I was at KMA for about two and a half years. We got acquired by another agency called the Pursuant Group. I was there for about 18 months. And, and during that time, between those two places, I just really became obsessed with like figuring out how do you optimize digital fundraising, right? And that's what's really kind of led to the genesis of Next After, uh, which launched in 2012. So, uh, and you mentioned KMA, I think that's when our paths uh, for, crossed for the first time. And it was that's probably right. a couple of years where we were just CC'd on emails to each other. And it's amazing how things kind of progressed from there. But um, I haven't told this story before, but I think it sums up uh, really well the, uh, the impact that Next After has had on the industry, as well as this optimization mindset. So I was fortunate coming into the business, started around the same time uh, in 2007. And uh, I was fortunate because I got to work on both the direct mail side as well as placing orders for email fundraising. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm working with a, a conservative think tank who we're both very familiar with. And um, this was right after President Obama was first elected. 
And and just to give everyone an idea of what the email landscape was at, the, at this point, and you probably remember this as well, this was a point when you had mailers that were literally scanning their direct mail pieces into the computer. And if you're lucky, inserting a hyperlink. There were some that didn't even do that. And that's like the stuff of legends that that even worked. But we came up with the idea of testing a very uh, clean looking survey. And it was just very simply, how do you rate President Obama's first 100 days in office? And nobody was really doing anything that was very simple in design like that. And uh, the, the open and click-through rates were just out of this world. I think we were probably getting 50% click-through rates. And you didn't even think about that point about conversion rates on your landing page. Uh, turned out they were really low, but we were putting so much traffic through, it didn't matter. And mm. we ended up mailing that um, at a break-even for six months. And coming from the print side, I remember thinking, wow, this is just like direct mm. mail. You test it to a package, you develop an evergreen, and you just run with it. They're direct mail packages that have been out there for 10 years. We were all familiar with them. Um, very quickly, that changed. And the right. window for uh, <clears throat> sending an email offer that was going to work got narrower and narrower to the point where it may be days or hours that you had to try to find something new. And a lot of people in those days gave up on email fundraising as being something that was going to be viable. But clearly, you had a different vision. You saw something else. So can you kind of take us back into how did you come to realize that optimization was going to be so important and that email as a, as a channel had much more potential than how it was being utilized at that point? Yeah, I'd love to share with you um, kind of how that journey unfolded for me. So, uh, you know, I spent half of my career or the first half of my career in the for-profit digital marketing world. And then I went to work for a couple of nonprofits and a couple of agencies. And so like, I had like this knowledge of some of the things that were happening in the for-profit space. Like I, you know, I was familiar with the concept of like decision science and behavioral economics and conversion rate optimization. And there was this company based out of Jacksonville, Florida called Mech Labs, which at the time was the largest conversion rate optimization company in the world. And they would work with large for-profit companies and they would help them to basically use the web as a laboratory to figure out how they could actually experiment and test their way into optimizing their online sales funnel. So I went to one of their conferences um, and I took the email optimization workshop, which was like the pre-summit workshop. And I was like, you know, I know most of the stuff anyway already, you know, the cocky marketer coming in. I was like, well, I'll just brush up on some skills. Well, in the first 15 minutes, I was like totally like just blown away. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. This is what's missing, right? We're not doing enough testing. We're not thinking about this as like the web is not just a channel, but it's a potential platform where we can actually run rigorous scientific experiments to try to understand and decode what works and what doesn't, why people get and why they don't. And I remember at the first break in that, in that workshop, I called my team and I said, hey, hey guys, get ready. Cause like when I get back on Monday, we're gonna change the way we do everything. And I was like, wait, why wait till Monday, you know? And, uh, and this is actually a part of the story I don't think I've ever shared with you, but you were actually uh, played a role <laughs> in this, in this uh, kind of like life-changing moment in my life. So we were working at the time with the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Um, our agency won the contract to do all the digital marketing for the $300 million capital campaign to build the, the library at uh, Southern Methodist University campus. 
and we're doing anything that anybody would do if you're trying to acquire donors online. We're uh, doing online advertising and search engine marketing, and we were renting email lists. And uh, actually your company, Conrad, was actually renting email lists uh, on our behalf. You were our broker. And um, we were sending out these emails and it was actually doing really well. Like we were doing these, like become a member of the George Bush Presidential Center uh, emails. And um, I was like, I want to use this as an opportunity to experiment with this new methodology I'm learning at this conference and see if it actually works. So I told my team, I said, give me an hour. I know we're supposed to send out to an email list of about 200,000 people. I want to split that list in half and I want to do an AB split test. And let's see if this stuff works. If it does, it could be, you know, game changing. If not, who, you know, what, we don't lose too much, right? So I'm like staring at this email and I'm trying to process all the things I'm learning. I'm like, what can I change? What should I, what should, what should I um, adapt in this B version of the email to see if this stuff works? And um, we were talking a lot about value proposition. I said, you know, I'm going to start with the call to action. And it, this happened to be the very last sentence of the email. And I made only one tiny change that very last sentence. And if you read like the best practice guides, they say only like 14% of the people read to the end of an email. So how can making one tiny little change make an impactful difference? But nonetheless, we ran the tests. Uh, 100,000 people got version A, 100,000 people got version B, which is the newly designed, optimized, hopefully, treatment. We ran the test. That one change produced 139% increase in click-through and a 42% increase in revenue. And at that moment, I was absolutely hooked. I said, this is it. This is how I want to spend the rest of my life optimizing things because that feels really, really, really good. Now, people often ask and say, hey, what happens if that first test bombed? Would you still be doing this? And I'm like, that's, like, that's a great question. I don't know. It didn't. <laughs> and I'm here. But that was like, that was kind of like the, the, I guess, the, the, the game-changing moment for me where I realized that like small little changes can make all the difference in the world. And that's yes. when I decided and, and I, this is it. And yeah. I, I do remember that test. And at the time it was um, kind of groundbreaking because nobody was doing A-B tests with email. Um, how did you initially get over that fear or, or sell the idea? Because the reason why, whether it's direct mail or email or any other medium, why people don't test more is they're afraid that the test is not going to work. So how were you able to overcome that fear? Uh, I mean, I just went rogue and did it. I didn't ask for permission. I, I said, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> ask for, you know, uh, sympathy or um, mercy if, if it doesn't work. But I, I just, I, I mean, I, I'm curious by nature. You know, I, I think, you know, me, we've known each other a long time, Dan. I mean, I'm just constantly, I want to know what's going to happen. Right. Like, and, and, and so this was kind of, you know, I guess a near term opportunity and, and uh, I took it. And that uh, original idea, the A-B test, has now progressed into what you're doing at Next After. And, and how many, uh, just to draw the picture, how many uh, tests are, are currently in your file? Or how many experiments have you done? I think we have documented and published over 2,600 uh, online fundraising experiments. So, and it's, it's far beyond just email. It's, you know, testing different ads and different landing pages and even just different variables within each of those different elements, like the headline or the body copy or the button text or, you know, every single little attribute that we possibly can. And the reason why we do that is because, look, I mean, you've been a consultant for a long time. I've been a consultant for a long time. People look at us like we have all the answers. 
And we know deep down inside and like the dark recesses of our consultant heart, like that we don't have all the answers. And that's why I love testing so much is because it really takes the pressure off, right? It liberates you to be able to go take the best ideas, get the best hypotheses on the table, and then allow the market to help you understand, allow the, the, the donors, the customers to evolve your understanding about what works and what doesn't. So that's why I love it so much. And those tests are um, of all different uh, shapes and sizes, which kind of brings us into our broader discussion here. Mm-hmm. One of your um, one of your areas of interest that has always fascinated me is uh, you put a big point of emphasis on figuring out what drives donors to give. And as fundraisers, I think it's really easy to kind of get sucked into the trap of, will people give because it's a good thing to do and most people are inherently good, but it really is not a natural behavior. Um, can you uh, share a little bit of background of why this was, why this is something that you felt was so critical um, to dig into uh, the psychology of giving? Well, I mean, giving like many other things is a very irrational behavior. It does not make sense on the very surface. I'm going to go give my money and somebody else is actually going to experience the tangible benefit from that. That doesn't make logical sense. And so, uh, you know, again, just being curious by nature and obsessed with like human behavior, I was like, this is like kind of a cool thing to spend your life trying to, you know, understand. Right. And so, I mean, I think that this is like a big enough thing that could captivate my imagination, you know, for the next 50 years, if I have them. So, um, the, the, the way that we've gone about this is by saying, okay, well, let's start with the very basic, you know, components of why people buy online. Right. So, you know, people buy because they're in pursuit of gain, but they're also kind of like, you know, at the same time, they have a defensive posture, which are they're trying to protect against loss, right? And so like, okay, so there's certain elements of like dynamics at play there, right? And so if you think about that from a, um, I guess a simplistic level, if people see more value, like if they see more gain, like, uh, you know, then they probably keep moving forward with the process. If they see more costs or potential loss, they uh, abandon the process. And so that's kind of like the foundation of how we think about value proposition, right? If the donor sees more value, they will give. If they see more costs or negative uh, factors, then they won't give. And so if you take that one simple idea, there's a whole bunch of different things that you can start experimenting with. Like, so one, you know, simple and obvious thing that people gravitate towards is removing friction from the giving process. And friction is anything that causes psychological resistance to a given element in the giving process. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's say that your donation form has 800 fields that you have to fill out, right? Well, every field that you require somebody to fill out adds an element of friction in the process. So one simple thing you can do is reduce the number of required fields. Easy, right? That reduces friction. And then when we test that, we find that, yes, in fact, reducing friction actually increases giving. Um, on the other side, you know, you may say, okay, how do we actually increase the value of somebody giving a gift? Well, they're not receiving anything tangible in, in, in return. 
Well, sometimes they are, right? Like there's things like premiums that people can offer. So if you give a gift of a certain amount, or if you give a gift today or a gift of any amount, we'll give you this thing. So we've experimented with like premiums and saying, okay, here's the value exchange. You give at a certain level, you get this thing. And if you, if you don't, you don't. So like, you know, that's one way to experiment with value. Um, the most interesting one for me is just about how we actually express the um, intangible reasons why somebody should give. And this is where it gets really, really interesting, right? Because people give for different reasons and they give to different causes for different reasons. Some people give like out of a sense of guilt, right? Like they've been, they have so much and they want to kind of relieve that guilt. And so they give a gift. Some people uh, give out of a sense of frustration. They're angry. They're, they're mad about like something that's happening in the world and they're going to you know, put their money where their mouth is and support this organization that's fighting against that or fighting to keep that. Uh, some people give out of a sense of belonging. They want access. They want to be part of something. They want to be, you know, inside of a movement of other like-minded people that want to see the same things happen. Uh, and then some people, you know, give for, you know, um, religious reasons, right? Because the Bible tells me so, right? Or they give out of a sense of like, of duty or responsibility because, because it's you know, part of their upbringing. So there's all these different ways that you could start to experiment it. And so it's really about trying to figure out based on this organization, our ideal donor, what is the most appropriate, I guess, uh, motivation or reason that we can position before them to align with that ideal donor to get them to say yes. And that's where the fun experimenting uh, kicks in. And is part of this also uh, maximizing the good feeling that the donor has? Because that's part of the giving experience as well. Um, I guess you could consider it a, a selfish element, but people do give because they want to get those positive feelings. Is that part of this equation as well, is uh, taking a step back from your mission and thinking about things through the donor's perspective? Absolutely. I mean, like the, the warm glow, as some describe it, is a very powerful motivator for a lot of people for why they give. And even more so even after they give the gifts. So like there's things that we've been experimenting with and say, how do we actually like make this entire experience even after they've completed that and reinforce that good feeling that they have so that they actually give again in the future, right? So that when next time I ask, they have a higher propensity to say yes again to support this work. And that's where the real, you know, exciting longitudinal tests come into play where we're like, not just looking at, okay, did this work versus this work? Well, you know, that's pretty easy to measure, but when you're measuring over time and you're measuring behavior based on certain prompts or certain primings, that's where it gets really, really, really exciting. Now, I think Next After has been wildly successful at changing the conversation around fundraising. And I don't say that lightly. Fundraising is notoriously a, a slow moving industry with a lot of smart people, but uh, new ideas tend to take a long time to evolve. So um, how easy or difficult did you find it initially to introduce these concepts? And, and how were you able to, uh, why do you think you've been able to, uh, to be so successful proving them out over time and getting skeptics to buy in? I think that um, the main reason why we've been you know, somewhat successful in, in you know, creating this conversation is because we've been very open to share everything we're learning as we're learning it, right? So, you know, this is hard for, for a lot of like business folks that may be tuning into this. It's like, you know, when you have something that's unique, that's special, that's your unique differentiator or your, your unique value proposition, 
we have a tendency to kind of like hold on to that. Like that's proprietary. I'm not going to share that with others because my competition may gain access to it. And then in turn may use it to basically, you know, replicate what I'm offering so that it's not unique anymore. Well, um, we thought about that and we said, you know, maybe the very best way to ignite this conversation and to attract people to this new concept of like testing, experimentation, optimization, using the web as a laboratory is simply by just sharing everything that we're learning uh, with everyone. Um, I mean, yes, there's an obvious danger there, right? Because, you know, somebody who is my perceived competitor uh, might use that same thing. And, and, uh, and then my customer doesn't need me anymore. But like, if you make decisions based on the fear of loss, I think that like it actually limits you. The positive side of giving away my very best thing today is it puts positive pressure on me and my team to come up with something better tomorrow, right? It creates this culture of optimization. Whereas like, you know, you're, you're only as good as your, as your you know, last hit kind of thing, right? And so like, that's actually not a bad type of thing to instill within the culture of your own organization. But even beyond that, there's a very pragmatic thing that happens, right? The more of this stuff that you give out to the world, the more that you kind of establish yourself as, as being a, you know, uh, a thought leader on the subject, right? You, the more that people begin to trust you because they're, they're seeing that you're openly sharing with them the data, both the goods, you know, the, the, the wins and the losses, right? The good and the bad and the ugly. And um, it, it tends to foster this, this kind of trust, even before I even have a conversation with a potential customer, right? They feel like they can trust me, right? So there's all these different reasons why I think, um, you know, that's, that's helped us be successful. But I think that, you know, just being open-handed is, the, is probably the number one reason. And more recently, we've seen the conversation within the industry evolve towards um, how on and offline uh, touch points impact giving. And Next After was just involved with a, a very important study with uh, Virtuous. Uh, we actually interviewed Brady on the show uh, to talk about it. Um, but Next After was actually involved in research, which became foundational to some of the fundraising principles, which I believe in. And I think we shared a client and... Um, uh, you looked at the value that um, having an email address for a direct mail donor, um, what the impact on that donor was, whether or not you were sending anything to them. And the research showed that just having an email address added value to the lifetime giving the donor. And that was really foundational for me, telling me that uh, on or offline, that these touch points or even just the donor's interest in receiving more information mm -hmm. um, are, are very valuable, very valuable attributes. And it doesn't matter as much where the donation comes from. H how do you see that conversation evolving? I, I feel like a decade ago, it was still very siloed into on and offline donors and the companies that worked with digital and print. Um, how do you see that conversation uh, evolving within the industry as how donors are looked like within these silos? Well, um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think um, traditionally we look at things very um, myopically, like I'm, I'm looking at just like one channel at a time and you don't have really even, I think up until recently, the instrumentation to be able to measure the impact uh, across multiple different channels and multiple different integrated, you know, uh, ways of receiving 
engagement with an organization. So the thing that I'm kind of like really interested in now is like, okay, if I'm a nonprofit organization, I have my acquisition budget, right? So I have a certain amount of money that I can spend on acquiring new donors. So how do I actually determine where to distribute my dollars? Like which channel do, am I going to go pour those dollars into? Um, and the answer to that question is, well, you know, your own organization has the data that can answer that question for you. So what we typically look at is like, where do multi-channel donors come from? Right. And when I say multi-channel donor, that's like a donor that gives one gift online and one gift offline in the same fiscal year. And if you look at it and we looked at like hundreds of organizations, multi-channel donors across every organization are always the most valuable. Like they give more than any other, uh, I guess, cohorts based on channel. Uh, they also have the highest retention value of any other cohort uh, based on giving channel. So if I'm, I'm comparing them to like offline only donors or online only donors, multi-channel donors are king, like they are supreme. So then if you start to look at like, okay, well, where do multi-channel donors come from? What we found when we've looked at data is that on average, online acquired donors convert to multi-channel donors at on average 209% more than offline uh, only donors to multi-channel. And there's, I think a very simple reason uh, that would explain most of it. And it's like when you acquire a donor online, by default, typically you get both the postal address and the email address at the same time. When you acquire a donor through direct mail, very rarely do people fill out the email field. And we've tested all different ways of trying to get more people to do that. The best we've been able to achieve is actually suppressing response rate, <laughs> which is not a good thing, right? And so, so then I'm saying, okay, if I want, if my goal is to get multi-channel donors, um, where am I going to go put my acquisition dollars? Well, I think that that makes one case for why, you know, taking a digital first approach makes sense. I think another reason why is that, you know, when you are considering digital acquisition versus, you know, offline direct mail acquisition, you have a lot more um, opportunity to protect capital when you're testing, right? So for example, I don't have to go and, and put, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 pieces of mail in the mail just to figure out if it works. I can go test in smaller quantities. I can buy Facebook ads. I can do rent, you know, email lists and I can test in smaller quantities. My offer refine it first and then, you know, start to move out into other channels. So what we've been really thinking about more and more now is like, how do we actually help organizations to start thinking about their organization as a digital first fundraising type of organization? Uh, does that mean that like direct mail is not important? Absolutely not. It is still the workhorse. It still generates the lion's share of revenue and opportunity. I'm just simply suggesting that if you are, you know, thinking about your acquisition budget, I would think, you know, how can I take this offer and go test it digitally first um, versus, you know, direct mail first? Yeah, I think the key there is is fluidity within budgets. That's something that we've talked a lot about is not boxing your budgets into these silos uh, yeah. where organizations are worried about, well, if we wanted to try a co-targeting test, whose budget does that come out of? Where development directors are truly empowered to, to be marketers and to figure out these things on the fly. And I think that's how we get a lot of those solutions when um, we unlock these budgets and, and allow uh, the people who we hire put in these positions to, to 
be creative, to make those tests. I think what really um, what really resonated with me from that report uh, was the fact that uh, there was so much value in just sending emails to direct mail donors if you have the emails. Now, I said yep. there's a data gap there, and I don't know that that's ever something we're going to be able to fully address. Not everybody's going to fill out that line in the in the reply form. Um, but what really jumped out to me is a lot of that is being done accidentally. There are people that are getting emails, it's adding value, it's providing valuable interaction. But uh, do you think there's an opportunity to take that to the next level, looking at things like email welcome series for direct mail donors or content that's personalized based on what the direct mail donor is, is uh, responding to? Um, have we really just scratched the surface about what multi-channel fundraising is capable of being? Yeah, big time. And so, um, I mean, to your point, like if, if we can actually acquire more email addresses for our direct mail donors and give them, you know, relevant, interesting and desirable content, right. That actually continues to reinforce the behaviors that they're taking out through their preferred channel of giving, which may be direct mail, uh, it's going to lead to greater, greater giving performance. So technology has opened the door to make this even a lot easier. I mean, obviously like, you know, historically we would go and append, uh, you know, direct mail records with email lists. And like, we all know that that is like not the best approach to take. Uh, typically these are people that have not specifically or explicitly said, I want to hear from you in this channel. And so, you know, it tends to not really have the kind of desired effect we would like, but what you can do now is you can take your direct mail uh, donor list that you don't have email addresses for. You can go upload them into, you know, to Facebook or to any other sort of ad targeting, you know, online channel and they can actually find those people and serve ads directly to your direct mail donors online. So then you can take your content offer and say, Hey, we've got this free ebook, you know, and you're, you're getting people to explicitly and specifically actually opt in to receive your communications. And we find that that actually creates a more quality relationship. It gives a gift, you know, initially through that content offer to the donor, which actually like, you know, actually makes them feel better about you and leads to higher um, conversion to multi-channel donor and also higher giving in their preferred channel, default channel, whether that's, you know, mail or, or otherwise. How much testing have you done with different touch points, whether it's social or text or over the phones? And have you found a point of, of diminishing returns where um, it doesn't pay to add um additional touch points or should organizations put everything on the table if there's an opportunity to bring value to the donor? Yeah, we have not tested every in it and in, in, in anything. Um, so texting is like the newest thing that we're experimenting more with of adding that into the mix. We have experimented with telephone calls and I can tell you that that does add a, a positive, um, you know, um, enhancement to like the, the giving in the preferred channel uh, email. We've done tons of testing around that. That's definitely a, a home run. But texting is kind of like the newer thing to start experimenting with. We've done like ads, as I mentioned, like targeting your direct mail donors with online ads. That actually has an implications for giving in their preferred channel. So uh, I don't think that there is a <laughs> a reason to like, you know, not try to take that to every single potential outlet as you possibly can. Um, but if we find a reason, I'll, I'll wave the flag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm on the same mindset. I think if you're bringing value and um, you're, you're offering unique value in that space, I think it, it pays to test as many of those touch points as you can. And, and what's really exciting about that is um, 
I think everybody wins if there's more collaboration, if these silos come down, if a company like NextAfter can help a direct mail agency provide more value to their direct mail donors, that's good for the organization, it's good for NextAfter, it's good for the direct mail agency. Um, there, there's a lot to be gained all around or having a more prosperous, in, prosperous industry if we think of a more collaborative mindset, at least that's my, my opinion. Do you have a, a take on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, our first value at Next After is focus relentlessly on client success and everything else will fall into place, right? So like, you know, we know our own needs will be met if like we make sure that the needs of our clients are, are served first and foremost, right? And like, I know that that sounds cliche and that sounds altruistic and all, isn't that all sweet and hunky-dory, but like, it really has worked well for us. Like we don't really care. Like if it means taking budget away from next after to go do this other thing, we're going to do it. If it's actually going to make the client have better results. Right. Cause like, that's, that's ultimately my, my focus and my goal um, is, you know, helping our clients to unlock greater generosity with their donors. Right. Because that's actually linked to our mission. Like we believe that our job is to decode what works and share it with us many people as we possibly can so that we can see our vision achieved, which is unleashing the most generous generation in the history of the world. We're not going to do that if we're just focused on trying to like, you know, make next after the big fat cat. Right. So like we have to, we have to constantly like be willing to let go. And that's the hard part. Yeah, no, I think that's a great mindset. It's obviously served uh, you guys very well. And and I think it's a healthy one for the industry as a whole. And uh, we're talking to Tim Kuturiak uh, from Next After about uh, why donors give and the impact that Next After has had on the industry. And Tim, as we prepare to wrap things up here, um, is there anything that you're working on currently or that you have going on that you're really excited about um, for long-term potential that maybe is uh, not on everyone's radar right now? Sure. A couple things. Um, so first, we have just published uh, the Global Online Fundraising Scorecard Study. This was a study um, conducted in nine different countries in four different languages. We partnered with like, I think, five or six different agencies in all these different countries to help us with this analysis. I think total over 535 organizations participated in the study. It is a monster. And Brady uh, Josephson, who you mentioned, who's the director of our Next After Institute, uh, really led the charge on that. And I'm really excited about that one because we really got to learn a lot about how uh, online giving in particular varies in these different regions throughout our world. And that's bringing a whole bunch of new ideas and insights and things that we can start to experiment with here with our clients and our research partners here in the US. But more than that, it's opened up kind of like this I guess this, this larger uh, potential uh, laboratory, right? So what we're doing now is we're trying to work with some of these, uh, these agency partners in these different countries to you know, basically replicate the next after model there and publish their learnings into this, you know, this central uh, repository where we can you know, examine all that stuff and learn together as a group. So that's really, really exciting for me. Um, we also, last year, we, um, we got really serious about trying to get more of some of the work being done in the academic space uh, into our, our laboratory. And uh, to do so, we actually appointed the Next After Fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Philanthropy in the UK. Uh, that's the organization that's headed by Adrian Sargent and, um, and you know, Dr. Adrian Sargent, Dr. Uh, Jen Shang. 
And uh, that's been really, really exciting because what they're doing is they're, the, the fellow is taking some of these um, academic theories in philanthropic psychology, helping us to adapt them into testable hypotheses that we can actually go test with some of our different research partners so that we can further evolve um, those theories. So that's really, really a cool thing that we're working on. Um, we're only about six months in, but we've tested multiple different things like communal and exchange language and like the sliding door and all these kind of really cool philanthropic psychology theories. And um, we'll probably have a lot more to, to share about that in the future. Well, that sounds very exciting, continuing to push the envelope of thought leadership. So a lot to look forward to from your work at Next After. And as we've come to the end of the show, we have come to our uh, rapid fire segment, which we like to call Five Asks, uh, where we learn a little bit more about you personally and uh, your fundraising philosophy. So Tim, are you you ready to play our uh, rapid fire game here? Let's go. All right. So first question is a relatively easy one. Um, Personal or professional, who do you consider to be your inspiration? uh professional um so who who's my inspiration is professional yes yeah yeah so um my old boss tom mccabe so tom mccabe uh founder of next or uh, i'm sorry of, of kma uh he really led me on this journey which he calls like the theology of fundraising which is the underpinnings of like basically fundraising is an incredible cause it's an incredible ministry unto itself. And so that's really, I think, what's excited me about being involved in this business. That's great. Um, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you're, you're considered a positive disruptor in the fundraising space as well as being a thought leader. What advice do you have for aspiring nonprofit thought leaders who are out there who might have different ideas that they're looking to push out to the industry? Test it. I mean, that, that's, that's it. I mean, that very first experiment, you asked the question and I never really thought about it, but um, sometimes you have to take a risk, right? I mean, like that's what testing and experimentation is all about. We live in a very risk adverse industry um, where everyone is so afraid of, you know, doing something that's not going to work that they miss the fact that what they're doing may not be working, right? So like, <laughs> what's the bigger risk? doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the same results or testing something new that could potentially fail, but could potentially be the breakthrough you've been looking for. What's on your DVR or your queue that um, you'd recommend? I just got done watching Cobra Kai and it's awesome for anybody who grew up like loving Karate Kid from the eighties. Uh, like I did. Uh, what a great ride. I've heard lots of great things. Um, one of the thing I, things I love about your story is how you made your, the most of your opportunity as a caddy. Um, is there anything that you learned being a golf caddy that's come to help you as a fundraiser? Yeah. I mean, most of, uh, I mean, this is maybe not so much a caddy, but just a, as a golfer. I mean, you think about it, you're on the golf course for like four to five hours and it t- takes a split second to hit a golf shot, which means the majority of your time out there is in the in-between, right? And that's a great like allegory or analogy or metaphor for life because oftentimes, you know, we're in between, we're not like here nor there. We're kind of like in between. And like, that's the opportunity where you get to like, enjoy, enjoy it, right. Enjoy the, enjoy the time out there, enjoy the time on, on the golf course or, you know, uh, in between wherever that places that you want to get to in your life and where you came from in your life. Right. So like, that's, that's a great thing to think about, I think. 
Uh, this has been a budding interest of mine, and I think something you're off, you're, um, you certainly would have a unique perspective on. What can the for-profit world learn from nonprofit fundraising? Well, that's a great question, um, and and maybe that's uh, that's something for us to to think about in in, in the future together. Uh, how we can actually take some of the things that we're learning, because if you look at what where most advertising is going, they're not marketing features and benefits and you know any sort of tangible attributes of a product or service anymore. What they're marketing are values. And that's what we do every single day. Like we market the intangible every single day. That's what we have to do because we're not trying to get somebody to buy something from us. We're trying to get somebody to buy in to us, right? And so I think that there's a lot of things that we've learned and that we already know um, that's going to have tremendous I think impact and potential applicability to the for-profit marketers in the future. Yeah. And I think people have demonstrated that throughout the pandemic. I go back to the early days, everybody uh, who was able to um, started ordering out from their favorite local restaurant. Cause we knew inherently that this was something that was going to threaten these uh, places, which were such vital parts of our community. And um, you probably didn't think about it that way, but it, it was a, charitable behavior. So I think there's a lot, especially on the small business side that uh, companies can certainly leverage from the nonprofit world. Well, Tim, this has been really great. I enjoyed the conversation. Um, if listeners would like to get to know more about you or your work at Next After, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably the simplest thing is just go to our website, nextafter.com. Um, every single experiment that we've published is there, all of our research studies uh, on a whole bunch of other stuff. So that's probably the best place to go. All right. Sounds great. Well, Tim, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about why donors give, as well as bringing us uh, up to speed with uh, some of your valuable work at Next After. Really enjoyed the conversation and really appreciate your time. It's always fun to talk to you, Dan. I appreciate you having me, buddy.